Yo, welcome to Slide, the Avalanche podcast. I'm your host, Doug Krause, and this episode was recorded on November 24th, 2016, Turkey Day. Last week we ran a little longer than I like, so this week I'm going to talk really, really fast, and hopefully we can get through even more material in even less time. It's known some throughout much of the American West since we last spoke, and things even got a little spicy in AK, and I'm just kidding. Rewind. My name is Doug Krause, and I'm coming to you this week from Maybelline's walk-in closet because it is acoustically damper than my living room, and that's how much I care. If you hear some hammering in the background, try to ignore that. My wrath may shortly fall on yon hammer. Slide is a podcast for all things avalanche-related, but I like to focus on decision-making and avalanche terrain, so that's where we're going. The focus here is on education more than entertainment, and it can be a little dense at times, but we'll start mixing things up as soon as I can actually get outside and go skiing. I'm going to start up the season in Silverton, Colorado, then head across the left pond to Hakaba for a couple months. Surely there will be some adventures and misadventures to report on in very short order. If you haven't already, please subscribe to Slide on iTunes or Android. Get it on your phone, and then you can listen as you go for a tour, or drive to the hill, or shop for sausages. I'm shooting for having a new episode out every Friday. In this podcast, we have a little state of the pack from around the globe. This week we are micro rant free, sort of, but not really. There's a whiff of gear talk, our feature presentation, and then brain traps, how our minds conspire against us. State of the pack. Colorado, Utah, and northern Montana all got decent little shots of snow this week, with the San Juan Mountains of southwest Colorado coming in as the wiener. Human-triggered avalanches were reported on Vail Pass and in the main Baldy Chute above Alta. General conditions are still early season, low tide. Definitely more snow in the Tetons and Bozeman areas, enough for avalanche problems and what is likely some rather poor skiing. Doug Chabot from the Gallatin National Forest Avalanche Information Center reminds us that recently wind-loaded slopes have the best coverage and are also where the most avalanches occur. Sounds like there's enough snow above 7K on the Sierra Crest to get some decent turns north of Tahoe City, but they're dealing with a persistent slab problem too. Radio silence from the Pacific Northwest? I reckon they're looking at a wintry pattern change. Things are shaping up in Canada with the Sea to Sky area and the Columbia Mountains getting solid shots of precip this week. There's up to two meters of base in some alpine areas of the Columbia Mountains. Great name for a band. Two meters of base. But across the Great White North, snow depth still diminishes muy rapidamente as one descends to near and below treeline. In Alaska, Turnigan Pass is dealing with a buried surface hoar layer, and folk have been getting busy knocking off slabs up to a foot deep. They're saying heads up on slopes all the way down to 20 to 25 degrees, reporting remotely triggered events, and avalanches running over or near existing skin tracks. Sounds like a righteous mess. No thanks. Across the pond in Europe, the Southern Alps are getting pounded, but temps are mild, so snow levels are staying high. They're set for another round this week. At one point, the SLF in Switzerland was warning of some regional issues with basal facets. Let's hope they get enough moisture for a big flush. I asked Meteo France about facets, and they just gave me a gallic shrug. The mountains, they are dangerous, n'est-ce pas? Still a little on the dry side in Japan. It never snows there. I wouldn't bother. The food is good, but it's no Benihana. 
preceding information is not an avalanche forecast. For all you know, I made it up. If you want an avalanche forecast, seek out your local avalanche center. Links to American centers are at avalanche.org, and avalanche.ca has all the beta for Kanukistan. Micro Rant Redux. Last week, I micro-ranted on companion rescue, beacon skills, and two-way radios. The highlights are worth repeating. Why only rant once when you can multi-rant? If you and your buddies don't have basic standing avalanche rescue plan, you are living in denial. Not the river, the land of poor preparation and needless suffering. I said poor beacon skills are like spit in the face of your partners, and I stand by that. A backcountry skier with weak beacon skills deserves a big old whiskey tango foxtrot and a smack upside the head. If you're the non-confrontational type, send them on down to the Bluff Street Alley and the 387 locals will sort them out. Two-way radios. These are communication tools. Communication is a critical safety capability. Ruminate on that next time you're yelling at the forest. I had a request for a micro rant on airbag packs, so I'll see if I can jelly that out for next week. Whiff a gear. There's a new skin company out there. Big Sky Mountain Products is the next iteration of the Climbing Skins Direct technology. They're trying to make high-quality skins that don't require a micro-loan. They are all Bozeman from seed to table and are working on cutting weight and improving attachment systems, including split-board-specific products. You can find them on Crackbook or at their website, which is harder to find. Books are gear. In my special world, books are gear. Don't you tell me how to freedom. If you want to learn more about the foundations of many of the subjects we cover in this podcast, check out Daniel Kahneman's Thinking Fast and Slow. It's pretty famous for what is essentially a book on cognitive science, but it also is an international bestseller and has a 4.5 star rating on Amazon after 2,357 reviews. Surely this indicates normal people can read it too. And now, our feature presentation, Communication, Part Duh. Last week, we talked about the responsibilities to speak and listen that we all share when we're negotiating avalanche country. As I said, communication has the potential to mitigate every single human factor we encounter in avalanche terrain. Of course, communication also has the power to confound our decision-making. With that power comes responsibility. Ideally, that's why I insist we accept responsibility for improving our communication skills in the name of traveling safely through snowy mountains and getting lots of powder up in our faces. Believe it or not, improving your communication skills may actually have a positive impact on the rest of your life. How to Make Friends, Influence People, and Not Get Slid by Doug Krauss. If you missed last week's episode, I encourage you to go back and listen to it three times. Strong work, Beely. The communication highlights resolved around our four responsibilities to ask questions, share opinions, share observations, and clarify the things people say to us to make sure we actually understand what they're saying. I kept saying ask, tell, share, what as a little device to help people remember their responsibilities, but I think ask, share, share, what has a better ring to it. Positively melodic. Whatever bakes your bun. For listening, we discuss three responsibilities, paying attention, respecting the message, and acknowledging receipt of that message. 
Attention is a scarce cognitive resource. If you're not focusing completely on what someone is saying, you're missing part of it. Respecting the message means trying to minimize the impact of all the brain filters and bias that are automatically applied to incoming information. Acknowledgement is similar to the clarification responsibility. You got to let a messenger know that they were heard and heard correctly. I don't have a good helper for remembering listening responsibilities. You're on your own. Don't screw up. Along the same bright beam of sunshine illuminating the dark recesses of our amygdala, let's now dig into specific tactics for more effective speaking. Big fat disclaimer here. These tactics will actually require us to think before we speak. Now, I know that's crazy talk, but once you get in the habit, it really does help. I got some rules. Clear, complete, concise, timely, relevant, and acknowledged. Kikikitra for the acronymically inclined. Doesn't exactly roll off the tongue, more of a palate thing, but it's fun to say. Kind of Kevin Klein quetching about Ken coming to kill him. These are rules I developed for speaking on the radio in an operational setting, but they work really well for face to face communication too. Six rules clarity means you are using appropriate and precise language. There is an avalanche vocabulary, and all of us need to know it and use it. If you don't know a persistent weak layer from a pepperoncini and pineapple pizza, check out the Avalanche Encyclopedia at fsavalanche.org. The FS is short for Forest Service. That's the National Avalanche Center's website, and it's full of great information. They love alliteration, too. Don't be lazy with your references. No, actually, I do not see which rock you are referring to a mile away on the other side of the valley. Perhaps you could be more specific. Maybe add some reference. As I said in the last episode, saying you feel pretty good about something is an analytical cop-out. It's lazy. Clarity also includes not muddling your ideas. Express one idea at a time and highlight the transitions from one to another. Now, on to our next idea. Complete still part of the larger framework of clear, complete, concise, timely, relevant, and acknowledged. Your message needs to be complete. Duh, right? Not duh. Ah, so. Don't leave out relevant information, like reference and context. My friend Maybelline is so fond of speaking without context, I routinely find myself simply replying, I have no idea what you're talking about. Including a bit of context supports understanding. Adding a goal or problem statement will help ensure your listener receives your message in the way it was intended. I'm harping on preparation and starting early because it's really important we get to the top before noon. That slope is going to turn into a giant white slurpee this afternoon. Have you ever thought something was a dumb idea and resisted it until you found out why it was being done that way? Then all of a sudden the wisdom becomes clear. We all have. Concise means get to the point already. This is not a book club. Think about what you're going to say and say it. If I have to follow your tortuous and convoluted inner path halfway around the mountain to get to what you actually mean, I'm going to stop paying attention and your message is lost. Remember what I said earlier about attention being a scarce resource? Don't abuse the attention resources of your partners. 
I have a really hard time listening to people that can't get to the point. Sometimes I even snap. For God's sake, man, just spit it out. Be conscious of the difference between adding context and belaboring the obvious. One is an asset and the other is a burden and a bore. Timely can be tough, but it's one way you ensure your message is an advantage, not a distraction. We can plan opportune moments for communication and build them into our habits. At the trailhead, halfway, at the top, back at the car again. That's a briefing, reassessment, and debriefing framework right there. My friend Smokey guides and teaches a lot. He not only plans time for communication, but structures movement and transition to facilitate communication. He likes to stop in places that are conducive to having a little face-to-face chat. How are you doing? Opportunities for less structured communication should be assessed for urgency and non-urgent beta delivered when a person is prepared to listen, not when they're enmeshed in something else. Obviously, urgent information is time-sensitive, so spit it out. It's also worth noting here that feedback is most effective when delivered promptly after an event. I used to work for a fellow that said, if you want to talk about something important, best time to catch me is on the chairlift, preferably right after I eat lunch. When you want to talk, you're asking someone to share a scarce resource with you. Attention. So respect that. You ever start talking to a person while they're reading? Did you start by saying, excuse me, but I'd like you to completely stop what you're doing and focus on me. Me, 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 me. Teach yourself to be aware of interruption and use timing to avoid it when possible. You can't trust a serial interrupter. They never listen and have no interest in other opinions. Relevance describes why you are speaking in the first place. A little blah blah is fine, but if you are communicating purposefully, your message needs to be relevant. It should add decision advantage. The message should be an asset. Unsure? Eh, Maybe what you got there is a question. The ability to assess relevance improves with experience but that should not stop novices from sharing their questions, opinions, and observations. Do you remember what I said last episode about ignorance and clarity? However, be wary of slipping from relevance into dumbing down the process or hand-holding and wiping noses. I used to work at a place where people were always chiming in on the radio with relevant information, but it was information that should have been shared in other ways. There was no need to force the whole mountain to listen to it. Don't use communication as a crutch. Finally, no communication is complete until a message has actually been received. So you share the responsibility with your listener of making sure messages are acknowledged. It's hard to tell when someone is not listening or not listening well. I've sat through entire meetings sitting up straight and making eye contact, but all I was thinking about was eating cookies and skiing powder. The meetings were in Japanese, so that made it hard to pay attention since I don't speak Japanese. But at the end of the meeting, someone thought I did. At least, I think that's what he asked me. Clear, complete, concise, timely, relevant, and acknowledged. A simple six-part framework for composing your message. At work. Control headquarters. Frost and Colossen are clear of Pope Dope Outer Limits area. Snowpack did not respond to explosive or ski testing. 
No signs of instability. Recommend we continue to maintain a high index of suspicion in this area, but it's clear to open. And we're heading back to the summit. End up play. Hey, yo, 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 stop, 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 stop. Look for a sec. Look, look up there at maybe Ridge. Second relevant shoot just ran. That's the same elevation and aspect we're heading for. Yeesh. Let's pause for the funk. Okay, groovy. But what about how we phrase a message? What kind of wrapper do we put our content in? You can be nailing your message content, motivation, and timing, but if you deliver it the wrong way, it won't matter. How you deliver the message has an immediate impact on how it is received. What I mean is that there is a continuum between assertive and passive, and you have to balance those extremes. Is your message best couched as a command, or would a hint be more appropriate? The level of urgency may dictate what style to use, but even then you need to be conscious of who you are speaking to and how that specific person will receive the message. This is called mitigated speech. Adding a note of deference to your message will make it easier to digest. Removing all mitigation lands a haymaker. Get away from that cornice! I think we need to get away from this cornice. We could move a little farther away from this cornice. I'd feel better if we were farther away from that cornice. What do you think about getting off this cornice? This cornice seems kind of sketchy. That's your continuum. Command, obligation, suggestion, preference, query. All the way down to hint. Using a command when a suggestion is appropriate is overly aggressive and will compromise your message. You might anger someone. That's not productive. If my boss says, take that group of 10 and go open the mega nar spine, and I think that's a terrible idea, I'm probably not going to start by saying, that's a terrible idea. I'm going to mitigate it a little and say something like, I think a group of 10 is too many people for opening a slope like that. Or, what do you think about trying something simpler than the Meganar for a group of that size? But using a hint when an obligation is warranted is overly passive. Meh. The message might not even get through. If I feel strongly, I'm not going to say, the Meganar is a high-consequence slope. Or, 10 is a big group. That's plenty deferent, but it lacks sufficient assertion. Making these distinctions requires social competence. A tall order for some, but the basics are simple. If you're talking to anyone that might be sensitive or resistant to your input, add a little deference. Be polite. If there's no urgency, using a question instead of a suggestion may ensure that your idea gets the respect it deserves. In casual assessment, I find myself using a lot of questions. It's respectful, can be lightly assertive, and helps to not bias an answer in favor of agreeing or disagreeing with me. What do you think about this or that? Instead of, I think this or that. When the stress levels ramp up, I'm more assertive regarding what I think is important, yet always mindful of how my message might be received. Speech must be painted appropriately to match the context and the target. I practice this stuff a lot with email. 
What's the exact right way to frame a request or an opinion for maximum effect? I've spent an hour composing a short paragraph trying to balance deference with assertion. I've got it wrong and triggered eruptions, but usually I get good results. Text is devoid of inflection. That's why email can be a good place to practice. If you choose your words properly, you don't need a little smiley face or a digital pile of poo. But we use those because our daily speech relies so much on tone and nonverbal body language. It's harder to message without those. I'm not going down the rabbit holes today, tone and nonverbal communication. Just a heads up, both are used unconsciously more than consciously. I've been told that, more often than I intend, I am prone to using tone and body language that say something like, What are you, some kind of moron? Maybelline confirms this. I'm working on it. Well, I'm aware of it. Recap. In speech, we want to be clear, complete, concise, timely, relevant, and get an acknowledgement. Six things. Stylistically, we want to balance assertion with deference. Paint your message appropriately for the target and circumstances, who you're talking to, and the urgency of your message. Don't use a command when a hint would work better or a hint when the sky is falling. That's mitigated speech. Brain traps. Motivated reasoning and confirmation bias redux. Last week, we broached the subject of motivated reasoning and confirmation bias, two related brain traps that increase the odds you are going to hit any unforeseen rocks that lay in your path. I kind of left you hanging, so here we are again. These traps lead us to seek evidence that supports a preferred outcome or chosen course of action, while paying less attention to evidence that is counter to our preference. They may encourage us to completely ignore or discredit evidence that is contrary to what we want to be true. I want to ski the Kung Pao Bowl. I haven't seen a fresh avalanche all day. There's lots of tracks in there. Looks fine. Surely we are good to go. Oh, that slide over there? Yeah, but that's just a little feller. And it's way over there. Things are different here. Well... This seems like a recipe for failure. Our search for evidence is biased. And even when presented with contrary evidence, we may choose to ignore it or explain it away. Often contrary evidence will even lead us to double down on our original belief. Ambiguous evidence may be wrongly taken to support our original beliefs. And all this goes on more or less unconsciously. Think about that. Think hard about the big powder days you've had in the backcountry. How many times did you tell yourself everything was fine? How many times did you question your motivations and judgment? We have all fallen victim to this corrupt form of reasoning. If you can't remember an instance, it's because your memory also favors evidence that supports your self-image. You may even think you are a genuine paragon of objectivity. To some extent, we all do, because we are all the hero of the story we tell ourselves. This kind of self-justification is normal, everyday human behavior. It's also self-defeating and compromises the learning process. The good news is that, in theory, it's easy to combat these tendencies. 
healthy doses of mindfulness and skepticism go a long way towards fighting bias. You have to keep your beliefs vulnerable. Whip them occasionally. If you catch yourself explaining away evidence, stop and reassess. If you're making an argument for a course of action, challenge yourself to make a counter-argument. Build a narrative that describes how you could find yourself in the situation you most want to avoid. How am I going to get caught in an avalanche today? That's called a pre-mortem. All that evidence you've been missing or ignoring gets pretty shiny when you slip on your failure goggles. The bad news is that, in truth, it's not that easy. Your brain didn't pick up this habit just yesterday, and it ain't going to drop it just because you say it's a good idea. You have to consciously practice skepticism and counter-narrative until they become automatic parts of your decision-making process. Even then, you're still going to get occasionally suckered. Remember my tale of Walter, the telemarking meadow skipper from last week? The more you have vested in your beliefs and self-image, the less likely you are to accept information that says you're wrong. If I can take you back to the 17th century and quote the father of the scientific method, Frankie Bacon said, The human understanding, when it has once adopted an opinion, either as being the received opinion or as being agreeable to itself, draws all things else to support and agree with it. And though there be a greater number and weight of instances to be found on the other side, yet these it either neglects and despises, or else by some distinction sets aside and rejects, in order that by this great and pernicious predetermination the authority of its former conclusions may remain inviolate. I'm just saying, stay vulnerable. Stay skeptical. In 2009, I was in the Alaska Range on Denali doing search and rescue work for a night ranger patrol. We'd suffer fested at the 17,000 foot camp for a few days and we're finally getting a break in the weather. 17 camp's a windswept wasteland on this frozen shoulder that serves as the last decent campsite before summit push. It's a medium-sized collection of tents and rescue gear and food caches and frozen pyramids of urine. View of the bottom part of the Alaska Range is spectacular but it's kind of like watching Niagara Falls from a dog yard. So we get up well before dawn and confirm that the weather's broken. We're on track to get out of camp and head for the top, way ahead of the guided groups that form this horrible, plodding conga line once they get going. Then some French military guy keels over and we have to abandon our plan and get to work. He's not in too bad shape, but we give him some O2 and monitor his condition for a while. And then my friend Derp sets himself on fire. Strike two. Derp is fine beyond some melted pants, but apparently still bears emotional scars from the lack of empathy displayed by his teammates. The verbal exchange went something like this. I'm on fire! Which was met with, deal with it. Eventually, some of the French guy's buddies get all set to walk him down and start moving out, so we start gearing up again to go to the top. There's no avoiding the conga line at this point, so we just put our heads down and join the plotting. A couple hours later, at a little over 18,000 feet, it is friggin' cold and windy, and my partner is not looking good. In fact, he is mildly dizzy and nauseous. So we hang out at Denali Pass for a bit, but getting colder is clearly not helping, so we have a little chat. 
He's seriously bummed, but agrees to go back down. I radio the other members of our team. We all rendezvous at 17 camp and commence chowing skittles and lolling in the sun. Then, somebody suggests we make another summit push. The weather is still looking great. It stays light until real late, so we still have time to get there and back. The way is clear now. Three out of four of us are feeling great. We did a fine job of coming up with reasons to go up. I honestly don't recall if we seriously discussed the downside or tried to build an argument against a second summit push. Why would I? We're the heroes of our own story. We nailed the summit and came back high-fiving. What could have possibly gone wrong? That's code for a lot of stuff could have gone seriously wrong, and we were prime candidates for motivated reasoning and confirmation bias. I'm not saying that's what happened. I'm just saying I'm older now. I'm more skeptical. That's it for this week. You got the second part of my communication sermon. Be clear, complete, concise, timely, and relevant in your speech. Get an acknowledgement and be sure to consider the best way to balance assertion with deference. Fight those brain traps. Look for the counter narrative and keep your beliefs and your self image vulnerable. As of this week, the podcast has been heard in 395 cities in 56 different countries. I got no idea how that's possible, but that's what my server is telling me, so. Shout out to Aberdeen. I will make it to Scotland before I die. This I vow. Shout out to Slovenia. What up, Rock? And to that guy or gal in Kansas. Keep the faith, my friend. This is our last episode of the season from South America. El martes, vamos a la nieve. Ojalá. Next week, we're going to start easing into situational awareness. I'll have some more brain traps for you. Hopefully some more snow to report. And hopefully we're all getting some turns in. If you think decision-making in avalanche country is important and worth discussing, prove it. Speak up. Talk to me. Talk to each other. You can comment on the Facebook page or email me at avalanchepodcasts at gmail.com. Join the conversation. If you enjoyed Slide, please subscribe on iTunes or Android. Our music is by Kevin McLeod and Incompetech. This week's emotional support was provided by The Avalanche Review, the Silverton Avalanche School, the American Avalanche Institute, the East Sierra Avalanche Center, Hakaba Mountain Life, and the Jaded Local. You know who you are. Thank you. Pray for snow.